Happy Halloween, everyone, and welcome to the latest nightmarish, seasonally tailored edition of the Squiggly Podcast. My name is Ben Mitchell, and I'm speaking to you alone from my isolated studio in terrifying Bedminster. Seriously, it's it's horrible. It aggrieves me to tell you that my co-presenter, Steve Henderson, cannot be here with me today. He has moved on to another realm, specifically Loughborough. So I have no choice but to call upon dark, troubling, intangible forces to summon him. Just one second. Stephen, can you hear me? I can hear you, Ben. Loud and clear. Can you see me? I can see you, yes. Ah, oh, shit. I thought I'd turn the video off. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I get self-conscious. Okay. Well, this is our uh, Halloween experiment brought to you through the terrifying magic of Skype. And uh, we're going to see if we can do this uh, uh, without actually having to travel across the land to record together in the same studio, because we live very, very far away from one another. And I think it's it's probably a better idea to employ these godless technological devices to you know expedite the whole podcast process. Yeah, I think this way we can probably do them a little more regularly. So yeah, uh, hopefully this will uh, work out. Yeah, first of many. So what do we have to terrify our listening audience with? What have we got to terrify people with? Apart from our good selves, obviously. Well, yeah, apart from apart from ourselves. We've got an interview with um, Sam Fell and Chris Butler, the directors of Paranorman, uh, the stop-motion uh, zombie fest. Also on the podcast, we have Peter Saunders of McKinnon and Saunders, the puppet masters of films such as Corpse Bride and uh, recently Frank and Weenie and a whole bunch of others. As well as an interview with one of my childhood heroes, creator of Dexter's Lab, Jendi Tartakov, Obviously, he's in the cinemas as well with uh, Hotel Transylvania Mm. and also uh, giving a little bit of life to Adam Sandler's career. And that could be the most terrifying thing of all. Well, all tricks and no treats (laughs) (laughs) from the Squiggly podcast. This is the podcast equivalent of the razor blade and the apple. (laughs) But it's the only one you got, so you got to sit down and enjoy it. Boo. There. There's your, your holiday spirit. Okay. On with the podcast. So, Jendi Tartakovsky, is that his name? That's correct, yeah. I was actually surprised how many people aren't nerdy enough like me to know the name of all the creators of their favourite kids' TV shows. But yeah, um, Gendi or Jendi, depending who you're arguing with, Tartakovsky was the creator of um, one of my childhood favourites, uh, Dexter's Lab, and uh, went on to, to cre- uh, co-create the Powerpuff Girls. I love um, the Powerpuff Girls. Yeah. Yeah. Who was your favourite? I probably shouldn't have admitted that quite so loudly and and, uh, excitedly there, but uh, had layers to it. Yeah, well, I mean, mean, there was some some great magic there, wasn't there? um, I didn't love them in a Jimmy Savile sense. No, no. (laughs) Although this is a Halloween podcast, Ben, I would advise against terrifying everyone with... um, With his grim spectre. Yeah. Yeah. I think he got that covered pretty much himself when he was alive. <laughs> Can't get sued by the dead, can you? No, thankfully not. 
<laughs> back to the very much living Jendi Tartakovsky, Dexter's Lab. What fantastic show. And I was I used to love Dexter's Lab. Were you a fan? Yeah, I liked it. It was funny. I, I liked the sibling acrimony. And I thought it was a nice premise. I liked that whole era, I think, of cartoons and the way they were kind of taking what had been established as a sort of not a completely shoestring budget, but, you know, using uh, not necessarily huge amounts of money to create very effective animation. I thought that was quite well done, you know, with both Dexter and the Powerpuff Girls and Samurai Jack. I think he's probably all in all a, a big player as far as that more contemporary mainstream family animation, you know, uh, producing lots and lots of content on a small budget, but putting story and putting the dynamic yeah. qualities of the characters first. As opposed to say the like the the eighties animation where they would perhaps have more going on visually, but the direction would be a little all over the place, or the performers wouldn't be that tight, or the scripts would be kind of lazy. Whether you like Dexter or Powerpuff or, or those types of shows, all in all, they were engaging and they had a good pace to them, yeah. and they it were was, quite it was tightly a great, put it was a great together. Great time to know? be to be like a ten or eleven year old kid, you know, mid nineties. You had. Um, the, the likes of uh, Cartoon Network in the UK bringing out like your Dexter's Labs and your Cow and Chicken and and, and things like that, which were which were just a r absolute riot as a you know as a kid to watch and enjoy. And Johnny Bravo, of course. And then you had on the other side on Nickelodeon, you had Ren and Stimpy and and Doug and things like you know some great shows. So yeah, I'm quite quite happy with my uh, being being born at that particular time. The sort of uh, the cartoons in a sort of post. 80s world were pretty cool. So what was your favourite of, uh, of this guy's? Uh, well, Dexter's Lab, I'm sorry. Uh, everyone everyone who I talk to now says Samurai Jack, which, yeah, it was, it was good, it was fun and, and everything, or, or Clone Wars for obviously the Star Wars fans. But um, for me, the first time I saw Dexter's Lab, just this frantic, you know, mm. fantastic animation just bursting with ideas and his bold graphic style, which translates very well into his into his new film just captured my child brain so did he have a, a design role with the new film or was it just direction you can see from some of the characters that he had a certain input certainly facial expressions and poses now this is my only problem is that it doesn't capture the the frantic very graphic pacing that that Tartakovsky has mm. this amazing zany wacky boisterous animation style can't really be captured in in a few images mm. but all, all the images that we've been sent don't really do the wonderful job that Jendi has done directing the film any justice well I mean it's it's probably going to be tricky anyway to translate anything pacing wise if your main career has been television mm. into film has he done films before uh, yeah, he's made TV films, um, but this is his first. They don't count. Stephen, well, TV TV <laughs> films based on TV films based on his uh, on his work, but this is his first major feature. And um, you know, the first question that I do ask him is, uh, what was the translation like between TV and film? Ah, well, great minds. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I guess we may as well uh, uh, punch up the interview then. Let's hear from Gendy Tartakovsky on his new film, Hotel Transylvania. Oh, well, um, Gendy Tartakovsky, thank you very much for talking to uh, Squiggly today. Uh, obviously, we're here promoting uh, Hotel Transylvania, the film that's out at the moment. Uh, now, you're, you're very well respected for your work in TV with uh, a whole host of awards behind you. Uh, did you find the transition from working on television through to a feature film such as this, uh, did you find that difficult at all or a big change of pace? 
It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was actually like one of the biggest uh, transitional elements that affected me, I think, was the, the pressure, you know. And there's always a pressure in television, and it's more about just, uh, you know, handling the speed and the quality in this very accelerated time frame where sometimes I feel like I barely finished drawing, and then six months later it's on the air, you know. And then if the episode doesn't turn out so well, you know that there's a next one that hopefully the audiences will like better. You know, so you don't have that kind of pressure to be so amazingly great for every single one when you're doing, you know, whatever, 52 half hours. But when I stepped into features, it's, you know, okay, you got a, you know, a year and a half or whatever, you got one shot, it's got to be funny, entertaining, uh, beautiful, it's engaging, you get to build this character to sustain, and it's all those things, and you have one opening weekend. You know, because once the movie comes out and it doesn't connect with audiences, you're done. Wow. You know? So so having that kind of, you know, framework in mind, that, that thought was really, I had to make a switch and really, you know, uh, everything in features gets scrutinized a lot more. And I was always trying to balance that with the right amount of scrutiny where we don't overanalyze it. Because everything I've ever done in my life was by my gut. Mm. <laughs> you know, there's, I don't feel like uh, filmmaking has rules. You know, it's really much more guttural. There's some basic rules you could follow, but but generally, it's about a gut, a storytelling gut, and um, and I really trusted my gut through my career and uh, and stepping into, into this role. There's out to create a lot of voices, and you know, sometimes your gut and your confidence and your experience is, is, is all you have. Do you prefer TV, or would you say you prefer feature film? Now you have the experience. Well, I mean, I, I love television because. For me, for my experience in TV, has been obviously very fortunate. I've been able to do my own creation after creation, and so that's, I know I'm very, very fortunate and lucky to have, to have that experience. And the great thing about television is you can try something new in every episode, and that's where we wanted to really push ourselves, and especially on Sam and Jack, where we were trying to do crazy things every, every time. And, uh, but in features, it's the reaction. You know, in TV, we would do something, and, and it would be on TV, and that's it. There's nothing. There's no feedback. You know, I guess, well, I guess maybe that works. You know, well, there's nothing like sitting in the movie theater with an audience and watching something you've created. You know, it really feels like I'm doing stand-up comedy or I'm telling a, you know, a story right in front of the audience without actually having to do it. Like, I can sit comfortably and hide in my chair. <laughs> and, uh, and, that's, and that's an amazing feeling to, to watch. When one of the test screenings, they were watching the movie and then you could tell where they were loving it, and you could tell when things were slowed down for them too much. Hmm. You know, it was really like you could feel the audience, and that was just a really uh, amazing experience. A lot more pressure by the sound of it then. Um, this is the, film, the film had a, a long history before your own involvement. So how much did you change uh, when you became involved? Well, the, the, the basic idea of the story was kind of there, the, you know, the, the Dracula as a dad, you know, running a hotel for monsters and, he's, you know, he's got this thing to deal with as a daughter. And so when I came in is I gave it a, a framework, a structure. I gave it, uh, the, what I really gave it is the tone and the broadness of the comedy, you know, the exaggerated animation. And, and, and I was able, like, a lot of the castle was already built. We still built more environments and some of the characters were built, but we built a lot of the secondary ones and Dracula and, John, and Jonathan. And so I was still able to contribute a lot. I mean, it definitely would have been nice to be there from the, from the start, but I was able to step in. And, you know, the reason I did step in, I did like the artwork, and it did look beautiful. And so I was, I had a good set of toys to play with from the, from the start. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, well, um, the film doesn't waste any time really in, in uh, showcasing uh, your own um, your own style very effectively. There's a scene where uh, Dracula and Jonathan are walking through tunnels, and it's a shot for about three or four seconds, and it's just them walking in a very confined space. And I must admit, I did laugh out loud at just the animation there. It was classic. Um, you know, Jendi Tartakovsky animation humour. Um, and without it, I think that the film would be losing a vital ingredient. How did you manage to retain such control over the filmmaking process um, to ensure that your bold graphic style um, fitted so well into the animation? I think that was my, you know, that was, that was my job. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, it's, you know, the, the great thing is I got to work with, 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 you know, with the animation crew every day. And we would sit there and I would be able to really redraw, you know, redraw some of the poses and really push the animators. Because the feature animation is very based in tradition, you know. Uh, the style of animation hasn't changed really since, since Disney, you know. It's all very grounded. And so to do something much more exaggerated, it was out of people's what they expect, you know. So I really had to push them and, and to, try to try to show them the, that it could be really crazy and, and, uh, and cartoony and broad, but you still retain the emotional element. It doesn't break you out of watching them. It actually makes it better. And the whole, my, my whole concept in animation and the whole reason why I love it so much, it's funny movement, you know, a caricature movement. Like that scene you're talking about is a great example. It's, it's when we first did it, every single time people laugh, mm. you know. And, uh, you, know, and, and you know, at first the studio was very... Because <laughs> there's never, I think it's people, you know, their eyes aren't used to seeing that kind of exaggerated stuff. For me, the movie is still very, very tame, very controlled for my own sensibility, you know. And so the first time they started to see the animation, they were like, wow, it's so broad. <laughs> you know, I remember, I remember their reaction and I go, well, yeah, this is a, this is a big comedy and this is what's going to give it the energy and the, the signature, you know. And it's, 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 I'm so happy that you, you're saying these things because when I started on the movie, in, in CG animation, I was afraid it was going to take all the style, all my sensibilities, and kind of soften them, you know, because it's computer and computer, you know, it's uh, it's different than somebody doing it by hand, you know. The kind of organic organicness disappears very quickly, and it homogenizes, like, all the movies are starting to look very similar, hmm. you know. And so I was really, I really didn't want that. I was very much afraid of losing my point of view, you know. That's, I mean, that's all you have as a director, is, is your point of view, and so I wanted to make sure that it came across. Well, it, it certainly did. Um, I sat there with a, another writer, uh, another squiggly writer, um, and she's also an animator, and obviously she grew up on Dexter's Lab, Powerpuff Girls, Samurai Jack, and she just, she was envious. She turned around to me as soon as the film finished and went, I want those rigs. <laughs> so I think I think the, <laughs> the translation was uh, was there, definitely. That's great. Yeah. Would you say that you, you had an affection uh, for 2D, or would you say that the ability to produce um, your own graphic style in what, by whatever means uh, was enough? I mean, the credits at the end of the film are a real treat for, for Tartakovsky fans who uh, would like to see more of your 2D stuff, but let's not, uh, let's not dwell on the ending of the film. <laughs> <laughs> I think I found, I was, I was very happy with the way it turned out as far as the, the look of it, because... You know, especially everything that we went through in this production, it's kind of a miracle look the way it does. Because it is, it's difficult, you know, there's there's a lot of voices in feature animation and sometimes, you know, it's hard to it's hard to retain that point of view. But yeah, I mean, ideally, yeah, I would be making a hand-drawn film. I think 
like it's funny because when we when I first showed the, the end credits on the I wanted to make sure that the people saw them on the big screen. There's such a big difference watching 2D animation on TV versus you know four five stories high. And yeah. you, it kind of took me back to my childhood when I was you know I would go to a movie theater by myself uh, like when I was 14 or something and sit and watch like a movie like Jungle Book on the big screen. You know, and it's there's so much craftsmanship, and it's just this magic of animation that I fell in love with. I wanted to kind of have that same, that same feel. And so yeah, so the for me, of course, there's nothing, nothing can compete. No amount of detail or realism can compete with something that's hand drawn because it's the ultimate personal expression. Obviously, being known for two D, I would say that that's very true. Um, and Sony, Sony Pictures, uh, they do seem to be the perfect partner for you. I mean, in the past, they've they've taken on um, Aardman and managed to retain uh, an Aardman uh, style or flavour very well. And this is what they've done with Hotel Transylvania, although it isn't an original idea from your side of things. It does really um, showcase your own style. Um, and you've recently been signed on to develop um, your own projects with them. Does that mean that you will still be working on the Popeye film that your name's attached to? Uh, and will your own projects encompass some of your past creations, perhaps, such as Samurai Jack, for example? I think starting out, it's uh, I'm doing both films. I'm, I'm developing uh, the Popeye animated film, and I'm developing my own original idea. And so we'll see which one kind of you know feels ready first. And then after that, I don't know. I mean, they're they're definitely like actually you know, going through this kind of uh, all this press. I'm really surprised at uh, how many people still have you know find affection for Samurai Jack. Like I feel like it's more popular now than when it was on air. <laughs> like somehow it's survived all these years and gotten stronger. So and I feel like they've kind of they've been the studio uh, the heads of the studio have been at some of the junkets and conventions and stuff. And they see this outpouring of love for Samurai and to have a Samurai Jack feature. And they've kind of taken notice, you know. And so I think it's kind of, they're interested, which is amazing, you know. And, um, and then we'll see. Hopefully, Hotel will succeed. And then, you know, I'm definitely going to start pushing it. And we'll, we'll see what happens. Is he, is he your favorite of your own creations, would you say? Um, I mean, artistically, yes. You know, we, we definitely reached a new level for television, I thought. And, but creatively, I feel like, Maybe because it's the first thing, but I feel like creating the character of Dexter and having it survive this long and inspire, you know, so many people, it's, I'm so proud of it. And just, you know, there's so many animated characters that are created every year. You know, every year there's whatever, 15, 20 new shows, and by within two years they're gone. So to have something that's lasted since 1995, you know, there's nothing more that I could be proud of. Excellent. Well, um, just tell us a little bit about your approach to Popeye, perhaps. I mean, is that something that you've always enjoyed as a kid? Is this one of your inspirations? I mean, what's your, what inspires um, uh, Gendy Tartakovsky? So, I mean, I think for me, Popeye was definitely one of the cartoons that I watched as a kid, along with Dick Avery, Tom and Jerry, uh, Warner Brothers. All those things were started to influence the things that I liked. And so the only reason I agreed to do Popeye was I said, if, we're, if I'm going to do this, it has to be a animated physical comedy that, like that scene you mentioned, the 80% of that will be the humor rather than the other way around and there's mostly dialogue jokes and a few animation jokes. I want it to be all about the physical animated, almost like a Mr. Bean in a way, you know? That's mm -hmm. like the modern day, I feel like he's such a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wanted to, and so they wanted that too, so they kind of agreed to do it. So I think that's what kind of inspires me is to 
to push animation to where it hasn't been, where it really hasn't been uh, for for a long time. To do something different, you know, I'd, I'd love for each movie to be different than the next. Excellent. Well, in going back to Hotel Transylvania. Um, the film's got, it's a very visual comedy film as we've discussed, but it's also got an awful lot of, um, of vocal comedy. You have the likes of Adam Sandler, um, Andy Samberg, um, Kevin James, uh, Steve Buscemi, a whole host of, um, of larger-than-life vocal actors. Um, how did you find the, the sort of the balance there? How did you sort of keep your own, your own voice amongst these many voices? Luckily, I like all these people, you know, all these actors, I'm fans of them. I think they're very, very funny, and in person, they're very funny. And so, for me, you know, part of my job was to take the, take the joke, take the read, and then deliver it and not ruin it, you know. Because when you have somebody like, let's say, Andy Samberg delivering a line, there's so much of his expression that's so unique and so funny, and that's sometimes what makes it funny, you know. And that's something that I was very aware of, and, and it was very, it's sometimes challenging, like, Here's the joke. Now, how do I not mess it up? <laughs> you know, and that's a that's a big part of a director. You're, you're communicating. You're not only communicating the story, but you're telling these jokes and pick the right shot, pick the right pose, do the right timing, and and make sure that I, I don't ruin it. You know, that was, the, that was my biggest fear is, um, is is not is ruining something that already worked from their you know really good line line delivery. You know, and it was great. They're like you know the they're so they're, they're so funny and what's what I came to realize, which is very interesting to me, was they're very serious about their comedy. You know, I mean, during the recording sessions, there was, you know, a good amount of fooling around, but I would say, you know, 80, 70, 80%, they're super serious about telling jokes. And if the joke isn't landing or they're not saying the line right, they're very affected by it. And there's nothing worse to a comedian than not having a joke land. You know, and, uh, you know, and taking comedy so serious is something that I was really kind of opened my eyes to the way they work. Would you say that's a similar working relationship to your own, your own graphic style? You need to make that graphic style work. You need to make the, the poses work. Would you, would you, um, obviously appreciate where the comedians are coming from? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you definitely, I mean, it's, there's a, to me, every single detail, the pose, the timing, the color, the way it reads, it's all builds to what the joke is or what the story is or what the action is, you know. If the pose isn't right, it just uh, it just loses it. And there's this great example. We were, you know, I had some really, a lot of great animators that really picked up the animation style and really started to push it. And the other ones needed a little bit more hand-holding. And there was this one scene, I don't know if you remember, it's in the pool where Jonathan's just walking downstairs. And in uh, the first half of animation, it was very good. It was very straightforward, very, you know, all the animators are good. But there was no energy to it, and, and it was a great example, because then I worked with the animator, like, no, no, you want to change the timing, you want it to make it less realistic. And um, and when we did that, you know, that scene never got a laugh, and then we changed the animation, changed the timing, made it more cartoony and caricatured, and, you know, paid a lot of uh, attention to it, and all of a sudden, that scene got a laugh. You know, and then you start to realize, like, oh, you know, have we done that to every scene? Have we milked? every scene for all that it can be humor-wise and, 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 and character-wise. And that's when you start to really have some great sequences and, and start to, you might not be laughing per se for every single scene, but you're just enjoying the energy of it and, and then you're smiling along the way. And do you have a particular favorite scene? Uh, One that you would say that you achieved all those goals that you set out to achieve at the beginning? Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, there's a lot of like little scenes. There's, um, 
but like I think the the, the rap at the very end, I think it turned out really fun. It's really energetic. In fact, I was crazy looking at it, and it's really has that energy that I wanted to to have. You know, I, I think that's it's very successful. And then at the same time, there's a, just a scene where Dracula. I think when he brings him into the ballroom, and he starts telling him, uh, you know, oh, you've done it this time, Mister. Hmm. And he does this little speech, and the animation, all the poses are crazy, and it's really uh, it's one of my one of my favorite scenes, you know. But there's little there's little moments, like also the whole dance sequence at the party, mm-hmm. all the characters dancing. I was so happy with them; it always gets laughs, and it's um, you know that that like that really feels like a you know a good sequence to me. Excellent. Well, Jendi Tartkovsky, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today, and hope everyone enjoys the film as much as I did. Thank you so much. So that was Steve talking to Jendi Tartakovsky about his new film, Hotel Transylvania. Where's that film set? Um, Rotherham. Ah, okay. Yeah. Misleading title. Yeah, it's a, it's a great film. You should go and see it, really. I mean, like I said earlier on, it doesn't really capture the, uh, you know, all the promotion that you see. It won't really capture the Jendi Tartakovsky that you, that you all know and love from your childhood, but... You won't be disappointed if you see the film. So basically what you're saying is the film's marketing department are uh, fools, incompetence, uh, blunderers, if you will. Saying, I, I do run an animation website uh, with yourself, Ben, so I think that would be a very foolish thing to say. <laughs> what I'm saying, Ben, what, what I'm saying, Ben, is how do you capture all this ferocity into into a single image? You just can't do it. I see, I see. So it's, it's yes. Well, I'll check it out sometime. Uh, uh, maybe around <laughs> Halloween. That might be uh, fitting. That, that would be ideal, an ideal time. It's not really a Christmas film. No? Obviously, there's the, there's Frankenweenie out at the moment, which seems to be doing very well, unless you're a Guardian writer. I, th- I thought his points were very reasonable. I mean, why would you want to see a stop motion? Why would you want to see a film where you could see how it was made while you were watching it, where you could actually get a sense of the tactile nature of the puppets and the uh, the craftsmanship? Well, what a what a fourth wall breaker! What a what a what a <laughs> dummy! <laughs> If people know, I mean, while we're recording this podcast, this guy, David Cox from The Guardian, he's got a real chip on his shoulder for stop-motion animation, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, I'll see if I can find it, actually. He wrote a piece called Stop Admiring Frankenweenie. Why stop-motion doesn't move me. Just basically telling us why we're all wrong. What are we doing enjoying beautiful handcrafted films? Why would we find it charming? Why would we find something charming when... uh, Shrek 2 took 900 million pounds globally. Obviously a fan of uh, of the Shrek films as opposed to uh, as opposed to anything with any sort of uh, tangible quality. Yeah, well I mean the the CG looks, you know, perfect and uh, uh, so photorealistic because if it's newer looking and it's it's more hyper real then of course it's better as the motion picture avatar <laughs> taught us. Yes, lessons we shouldn't forget. You don't need story, you don't need character development, you don't need anything that can engage you whatsoever, as long <laughs> as everything's neon and translucent and impressive. It's a good... Well, I... You know, <laughs> that film is kind of one of the, the, the biggest grossing films ever, so I can't exactly say it wasn't a crowd pleaser, but, you know. And I think the, the, the thing that... 
demonstrated that this guy was missing the point. This was the, the closing paragraph. Frankenweenie may take a lot less at the box office than Hotel Transylvania, but it was made for a mere 39 million. So take that, stop most snobs. Yours is the low rent option. <laughs> I think that that's kind of demonstrative of completely missing the point, you know. <laughs> um, it's cheaper to produce and it's, it's not as big a box office earner, so that automatically, you know, determines its quality. And I think one of the best films made in the last five years is a stop-motion film, and we've talked about it before. It's called Mary and Max, and that was made on, I think, the stop-motion equivalent of a shoestring budget. I mean, they had money for it. It but was about it, eight million, something like that. Yeah, so it, it and that was very effective and very touching. It was well made as a film. There were no big ingenious action sequences in it because they would have been redundant. And I think if it you know were a, a film made in Hollywood as it was, it was an independently produced uh, Australian film. There probably would have been more of a, a studio pressure or an impulse to throw in something unnecessary to sell it more as a kind of you know big uh, uh, adventurous visually dynamic piece of work and i find that uh, actually when you think of like not necessarily even independent animation but you know animated features that crowbar in advanced visual stuff that actually kind of takes you out of it a bit yeah um did you see the illusionist oh, a little a bit of a tangent no but... i i absolutely i absolutely adore the illusionist many many people um who are well basically everyone i discussed the illusionist with i, I will defend it I, I really loved the illusionist just for its um the way it captured mood and weather and it's such a mm. beautifully handcrafted 2d film in an age where people are saying oh well disney's not making 2d films anymore so 2d must be dead um, for uh, Sylvain Chamay to, to turn up and, and create such a such a great film, obviously using um, using some very talented uh, animators, for him to turn around and just just show people uh, that you know at least the visuals can uh, entertain, you know, thrill audiences. I, I was thrilled by it. I, I really loved it. Although I did have a few problems with the with the script. What do you find you have to defend about it? Uh, I I find that I have to defend the story. Basically, people who don't know an awful lot about the history of the film. Right. Um, basically, just say it's a rubbish story and they, they don't really appreciate that it's, it's uh, Jacques Tati. It's almost like an apology to his to his daughter that he neglected. Um, mm. So it's, uh, yeah, I really, I really enjoy the film. I mean, what did you think of it? I liked it. I thought that, you know, again, I, watching it from the perspective of, of what I do, was very you know enamored of, of the animation and and the you know uh, backgrounds I absolutely loved and the layout was fantastic. I remember the story being slow, um, but not particularly being offended by it. Um, it was of an era that has has I think passed a mainstream audience by. Yeah. Uh, but the stuff that I found unnecessary was the impulse to to crowbar in advanced CG shots and, and processes and stuff like for the vehicle animation and there's one completely unnecessary pull out shot toward the end it's of Edinburgh it's the one shot in the whole film that I will agree with anyone that it shouldn't have been in it I mean although the film turned into Sylvain Chomet's sort of love letter to Edinburgh the original script by Jacques Tati was, was based in Prague it really took you out of the craft didn't it yeah. by doing like a CG turnaround of Edinburgh so that's an example of the kind of thing, 
it seems more like something that someone insisted on squishing in there to make people feel like they're watching a movie that's been made in the here and now. And, you know, going back to Mary and Max, you know, which doesn't have... It has some very impressive visual stuff in it, but it has nothing that is there for the sake of technology's sake, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, I think that, you know, The Illusionist didn't need something like that. So that's why it stands out, and that's why I take issue with it and you take issue with it. And from just what you've said, everyone I've talked to and everyone you've talked to, it's that same part of the film that they didn't like. Now, this Guardian writer, if he saw The Illusionist, and maybe he did... That would probably be the bit that would have impressed him the most, you know? Yeah. <laughs> People are wired a certain way. And, and I remember when, uh, you know, Shrek came out and there were some very impressive shots in that hyper photorealism in Shrek, but I didn't feel it helped the story at all. Unfortunately, it seems to have pushed everyone in the same direction, as Gendy Tartakovsky said in our earlier interview. Mm. Um, it sort of homogenizes all the other animated features and, and they're all sort of looking the same. Yeah, yeah. It's a pity because, you know, the capabilities of CG, and I have a very rudimentary understanding and history with CG processors, but what little I know kind of blows my mind in the sense of, wow, you can do so much with this. More than feature filmmakers, like short filmmakers that make really spectacular CG films, some people that we talked about uh, last podcast with the festival special, people who are doing amazing things with texturing, um observational CG, illustrative CG. It's really sort of limitless. So yeah, why is everyone just making the same stuff over and over again? You know? Yeah, it, it is a it is a shame, isn't it? Because you know what we see is the tip of the iceberg and what the technology is capable of beyond far more than just different texturing or different character design. There's some pretty fantastic films on the on the festival circuit which prove that. So how do you feel about the design work in Hotel Transylvania? Well the character design work, as opposed to the sort of modelling and, and rigging and things, is fantastic. You get some great characters made by Carlos Grengel. He did a lot of work for Tim Burton on um, The Corpse Bride. Uh, and I think his major contribution to this film was like The Mummy, uh, whose bandages serve as like a, as a means to lip sync, as like lips and things, uh, which is a pretty cool um, approach. I wouldn't go so far as to say that it looked too much like anything else as opposed to saying that it looked like each character was individual. Obviously the lead characters uh, very much modelled on Jendi Tartakovsky's own style, whereas like I said, the mummy, the werewolf and uh, Frankenstein, they all seem a little different, which is great because it's not sticking to a rigid style where all the characters' eyes are in the same place or they've all got the same you know, sized hands or, or they've all got the same hair. You know, it sort of goes away from a uniformness which you see in most uh, stop-motion films. Hmm. But with CG? Yeah, 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 sure. Well, Hotel Transylvania is out now in cinemas, and so is Frank and Weenie, so for the animation audience out there, I suppose you can go and see both and uh, make your own mind up as to whether or not uh, stop-motion or CG prevails, and whichever one uh, scares the pants off you more. See which is the low-rent option. So on this subject, uh, you talked to Peter Saunders of McKinnon and Saunders, and they essentially being responsible for the puppets on Frank and Weenie. Uh, should we give that a listen? Before we have our interview with Peter Saunders, let me tell you a little something about the company, uh, which is McKinnon and Saunders, uh, that he co-founded with, uh, with Ian McKinnon. 
Um, they both met in the 70s, 80s, I believe, um, working at Cosgrove Hall, making the puppets. Unfortunately, when Cosgrove Hall laid a lot of people off, these guys had to start up their own company, which has quite the pedigree when it comes to their puppet work. Not only are their puppets featured in many fantastic short films, many that have been Oscar nominated, their crowning achievement, I suppose you could put it, would be Tim Burton's uh, Corpse Bride and obviously the new Frankie Weenie that's out now. Uh, they also did Fantastic Mr. Fox. They're back to the short films. They also did The Periwig Maker, which was Oscar nominated. And now they're making their own step into production with the likes of Toby's Travelling Circus, which is, I think, shown Channel 5 Milkshakes uh, on Saturday, Sunday morning. Plenty of stuff for them to be getting on with. And it's interesting to find out a little bit about the relationship between, you know, a production house, you know, a house that produces models for a designer or director. I found it fascinating. Hope you find the same. Hope you enjoy. Maybe if we could uh, take a walk back in time and uh, and how did you really start in the world of, of model making and animation? When I was I was a kid, I, I, like a lot of people who, who like stop motion, I was a big Harryhausen fan. And, um, you know, I couldn't wait till the, the latest Harryhausen film came out and I was always uh, absolutely enthralled by the magic of what he did. Uh, but also intrigued by the, the, the mechanics of what he did. You know, how on earth did he get these dinosaurs and monsters interacting with people? And how did he do it so skillfully uh, and so seamlessly? I mean, I, I know they, by today's digital standards, people might say they're, they're crude, but in, you know, when I was a kid, they were uh, really some cutting-edge technology. And, and um, you know, things like... Um, Jason and the Argonauts is still a classic film and the sequence at the end with Jason fighting the, uh, the, the, the skeletons is, is still a brilliant bit of filmmaking you know no matter how it's been achieved it's still a great bit of cinema yeah it's left quite a legacy I understand that you started off at Cosgrove Hall is that correct yeah, yeah I, I went to uh, art college in the, uh, in the 70s and um, fully expected to, uh, to, after leaving, I had a great time at art college and I was able to pursue, uh, you know, doing um, stop motion projects. But after, uh, after that, I thought I was going to have to get a real job and work in a bank or, or become a job free teacher or something. But I, I, was, I was incredibly lucky. Uh, Brian Cosgrove came down to uh, the art college. Uh, I was at West Surrey College of Art and Design. He was looking for animators for a film called Lost Parcel that they were doing. It was a drawn, drawn animated film. And um, he happened to see some of my model work purely by an accident. But he, he thought it, you know, it looked good and it, it um, was relevant to some work that he was doing. So Cosgrove um, Hall got in touch about a week after I finished art college and said, would well, I like to come in for a few weeks' work finishing off some stop frame puppets that, that Brian was working on. I went there, I was paid for out of petty cash for, for six weeks and then um, they said look we've got more work coming in and we, we like what you do and uh, would you like to stay and I ended up staying there for 14 years. So and, and Cosgrove Hall was a fantastic company. You know it did both drawn animation and uh, puppet animation and there, there was a kind of crossover in certain uh, films and projects 
But there was just such a lovely atmosphere there. The Mark Hall and Brian Cosgrove were great people to work for. It was just a lovely, friendly, um, artistic and creative place to work. Would you say that that's something that you've continued with the work that you're doing currently? Yeah, we tried to retain the, that kind of atmosphere that Mark Hall and Brian Cosgrove created. There's no getting away from the fact that in today's age, particularly, that deadlines are very tight and people have to work very hard. But, you know, I, I've hoped that we've managed to um, retain the, the element of fun with the work we do because we're very, very lucky to do the type of job that we do. You know, I'm, in all the 30 or more years that I've been uh, working in this industry, I've never once taken a day for granted. You know, I, I feel incredibly lucky to, uh, to be in this business and to work with the people that we do. Is that where you met Ian McKinnon at Cosgrove Hall? Yeah, when I was at Cosgrove Hall, uh, I was in charge of the, the public workshop and um, we sent a newspaper cutting about a, a young lad in, in Warrington who'd done some uh, sculpting and puppet making and what have you. And um, uh, I thought it would be a good idea to, uh, to meet this person and check him out. And uh, uh, that's when I first met Ian. He's, uh, he was a teenager at the time, but doing incredible work. One man band, he's, he's myself. I'm a pretty, pretty much a one-trick pony. I do kind of the mechanical side of the puppets we make. Ian's a real polymath. He, he, you know, he can sculpt, he can paint, uh, he can do mechanics, you know, and he's a brilliant business person. So um, when everybody lost their job at Cosgrove Hall in 1992, Ian seemed to be uh, a good person to hook up with uh, in terms of running a business, and uh, he, he's continued in that vein. He's a, he's a great puppet maker as well as a, a very good business person, as well as been an exceptionally nice person so you know I feel very uh, very blessed that I've been able to work in a business with somebody uh, you know as, as wonderful as, as Ian. Does the company really trace its roots back to like the early 90s with uh, with the Sandman? Did you have an involvement in, in the in the Paul Berry film or was that just um, was that just Ian? Whilst I see was at uh, Cosgrove Hall uh, he uh, got together with Paul Berry and uh, one of our sculptors who was the, uh, employed there at the time called Colin Batty and the three of them uh, I think wanted a bit of a, a bit of light relief from doing um, children's TV series with fluffy bunnies and uh, toy line creatures and what have you and um, so they, they got together and in, in their own time um, you know, did this very, very dark short film called The Sandman I think nominated for an Oscar in 1992. Yeah, same year as uh, a screenplay for Barry Purvis, one of your uh, colleagues there. I've, I've known Barry Purvis for many years. He worked at Cosgrove Hall, but then when he left Cosgrove, he, he worked um, independently as an as a independent uh, filmmaker and, and obviously went on to make uh, you know many films, um, one of which was screenplay. I've worked on many of Barry's solo projects as well as um, worked with him alongside, well, alongside with him at uh, Cosgrove Hall. He's passionate about the work we do about uh, puppet animation and um, uh, he's currently working with us at the moment as a director. So over the years we've had a very close association uh, with Barry. So starting off a company back in the early 90s, I mean, 
did the work come and find you? Did the, did you have to go and find the work? How does the balance between business and, and being an artist and a creator, how does it, that dynamic work? Uh, Ian and myself set the company up in 1992, and it was a, a big step into the unknown. You know, suddenly to be out on our own, making puppets, you know, it's, it's kind of a niche job in a, in a niche industry, as it were. And we had no idea whether there would be sufficient work to actually, you know, pay for our own wages, let alone other people's. And in, in those first two, three years, we took on anything and everything. So I think one of our first jobs was making some uh, talking um, parking meters for, for a council up in, in uh, Newcastle, I think it was. Uh, but we'd also do uh, models for, for adverts, still, still models for adverts, puppets for animation, whatever work we could get, we, we took it on. But over a period of time, you know, we managed to establish ourselves doing what, uh, what we've done with uh, Cosgrove Hall previously, which is, is you know, specialising in making puppets for, for, for animation. And um, it slowly, over a period of time, people within the industry became aware of who we were and what the nature of our business was and, and would come to us asking, you know, for, for kind of specialist puppets to be made. So it, it took a while, but um, I guess one of the, the things that really gave us a big boost was three years into the company being set up, we were contacted by Tim Burton to see if uh, we wanted to work on uh, a film called Mars Attacks. And this was going to be uh, his homage to uh, Ray Harryhausen. It was going to be a, a mixture of live action and uh, stop frame puppets. Uh, and he asked us to make the puppets for that. So, you know, that was a pretty big deal for us and uh, a great thrill to be asked. Although the film finished uh, being, being CGI, I do believe it may have had a bit more of a, this is just personal opinion, a cultural impact, so we say, had it continued to be stop motion. But that's just my own my own personal opinion. It was Tim's original concept for it to be stop motion, obviously, and, and when we, we met up with him in, in New York for the, the very first time, we were as nervous as hell, you know, meeting a, an A-list Hollywood director, and, you know, it was Ian from Warrington and me from Rochdale, you know, it was like, what the hell are we doing here? But we plucked up the courage to ask him, you know, why are you doing this with puppets when you could do it? With, um, with CG animation and um, he said yeah he knew all about CG special effects it was something that you know obviously he considered but he said he, he wanted the physicality of, of it being um, done with, with puppets and I think his love of, of you know stop motion films has been borne out by you know what he's gone on to do subsequently you know he could have done both Corpse Bride and uh, Frankenweenie with CG, but he's, he's kept to his, his love of uh, puppets with those films. And um, he was it was very apologetic when, because of deadlines and, and uh, technical reasons, they, they had to make a decision to do Mars Attacks with CG. So it wasn't his preferred choice, and the, the puppet animation was just taking way too long. If we're talking about um, about the mechanics of something such as Corpse Bride, the fluidity in, in the characters' faces as it moves is all really sort of testament to the model making, and, and it's it, it is on I would say it is on par with CG the movements in in something like Corpse Bride and the face movements, but it still retains a sort of a stop motion quality to it, which which is very important I would say. 
with the Corpse Bride film, we were approached to do that, I think, in like 2002. And um, Ian himself were given a, a script or sent a script to, to read. And my first reaction was that this uh, was a film that needed to, for, for the characters, the technical approach needed to be like like Skeleton Productions had done Nightmare Before Christmas and with the, uh, the Jack character who had a series of replacement heads, you know, I felt that, that a lot of the key characters in, in um, Corpse Bride really needed to be done like that because it read like a kind of a, a mock gothic horror and, uh, you know, I felt that there was going to be like lots, lots of extreme facial movements, screaming and, you know, looks aghast and, and what have you. So my inclination was that we should do the, the, the heads with replacement masks or replacement heads. But the, the, the director that was working alongside uh, Tim had, had seen a film that uh, we'd been involved with at Cosgrove Hall called Fool of the World and His Flying Ship. And uh, Mike really loved this film and it had uh, the, the main character called Pyoto uh, had um, a mechanical head which was operated with a series of gears and, and pulleys and what have you. And he said, no, no, I want the heads to be done like this. And um, we said, no, no, you really don't. <laughs> <laughs> Not only because we, we knew the limitations of, the, of, that, of that technique. You know, you can't go for extremes with these kind of mechanical heads. And we also knew what an absolute swine that puppet was to, to maintain in service. So, in, in order to disprove his conviction that uh, that's the way we should go, we actually made a Victor character, threw some gears in it, threw some cables to operate the mouse and, and, and what have you. And it, we just said, look, this is just a lasher, but to show you how limited these heads will be if we, if we go the route that you want us to take. Anyway, they got a a London-based animator to do some tests and uh, this guy, I can't remember the animator, I'm not sure if it was Anthony Scott who, who um, did the test, but one of the animators did this fantastic test with it and, um, you know, we, <laughs> we got disproved, you know, by the very effort that we made to kind of prove our point. Um, and Mike, Mike Johnson said, Pete, you see, you're wrong, it, this works fine. and. Um, so we, uh, we ended up having to do the, the, the heads with all these kind of crazy gears and pulleys in and what have you. Which, you know, personally I wasn't too happy about at the time. But in retrospect, you know, I'm so grateful for Mike Johnson sticking to his guns because well, I think it was the right decision. And I think my preconception of what they wanted was completely and utterly wrong. So, um, you know, when, when we saw the the, the finished film and all these, you know, the beautiful animation that they got from these mechanical heads, I had to admit that Mike got it 100% right. You have really become stars of the show. You get a credit, beginning and Saunders, you know, as, as actors, as, as puppets are actors. You thoroughly deserve that. Can you tell us a little bit more about your relationship with a director such as Tim Burton? Um, you know, he's, he seems to have, have an affinity with, with the studio. I think we've been very lucky that with, with Tim, he's taken a bit of a, a shine to, to the company, you know, to McKinnon and Saunders. And, and okay, that's my name and his name, but really what it represents is a, is a whole group of what in 
our view, are fantastic puppet uh, makers. You know, we've got some great, great sculptors and mold makers, puppet makers, painters. We've been very lucky over the years to get such a good team of people together. And I think, you know, Tim really loves model animation. And I think, you know, when he comes to the workshop, he, he sees that we as a company, we're not driven by profit. We'd love to make a profit occasionally. You know, what drives us is, is the love for the work we do. And, and I think that's, that can be said of the people who work with us. That, that I've seen some of the, 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 the work that um, the people who we work we employ have done outside of working hours, you know, either as, uh, as students or, you know, for their graduate work or in their own time. You know, they're very, very talented people. And I think when Tim comes up, he just sees that there's this crazy little company in the middle of nowhere at all related to the film industry. Neither, you know, we're neither in London nor in Los Angeles. And yet we're kind of busy working away, trying to do our, our, our best, making you know, beautiful puppets for whoever. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, Tim Burton, we're helping somebody make a puppet for, for a short film. You know, we'll, we'll always try and do our very best to do the best work we can for, for that project. With your team and, and with the company, you don't really have a, a house style because you're working to uh, outside briefs, I would I'd say. And, uh, but do you have any particular favourite, or do, you, do your team have any particular favourite sort of challenges that you, you, you are given? I mean, do you prefer to work some, on something like uh, Harryhausen-esque, like you did for the League of Gentlemen film, or, or something... Yeah designed by Curtis Joblin, like uh, Frankenstein's Cat or Ra-Ra, you know, or, or something something sort of in between. I mean, what's what do you relish? What do the team like to get their teeth into? Well, just to, to um, pick up on a point you made at the beginning there about us not having a house style, um, you know, I couldn't agree more. If, if we had a house style, I think we'd be failing in our job in a way. Yeah. Um, it really amused me. A few, a few years into when we set the company up, we worked on all sorts of Things. We made dinosaurs and uh, we made little mice for Bramley Hedge and, and all manner of different crazy things. And uh, I remember somebody coming around the workshops and saying, you know, oh, it's a typical McKinnon and Saunders puppet. And uh, I couldn't be more offended really because, you know, I, I think we as a group of people take pride in, in trying to do whatever, you know, the, the style the client wants us to work in. We never try and push our style onto, not we haven't got a style, but we, even if we did have, we would never try and push it onto the client, you know. Um, you know, if Tim comes to us with his crazy sketches uh, that he did for Frank and Whitney, you know, our challenge is, is how we interpret those to be as truthful as, as to Tim's drawings as, as, as we can possibly get. And same happened with Curtis Joblin, who designed the... Uh, of the builder characters, Curtis has got you know a very very different style to Tim's, and, and you know I love both of them. They kind of kind of opposite ends of the scales, but I I get a real thrill, and I think a lot of people who work with us you know really like the challenge of being able to say like yeah we can do Tim Burn style puppets, but you know we can also do something like Bob the Builder, which is very different, but. You know, we, we worked really hard to honour the integrity of, of Curtis's drawings. And, um, you know, if you, if you ever get a chance to see some of the original designs for, for Bob, the puppets we made are very true to Curtis's designs. And, you know, one of the, 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 the things 
that I love about what we do here is that we do work in a whole series of different styles and, and kind of genres. So, you know, it's easy to kind of make your way just doing preschool children's programs, but, you know, it's, it's a challenge when you go from a, doing working on a preschool program to working on a, you know, a Tim Burton kind of gothic horror to then working on a, a commercial for, for tissues in America, you know. To, I think that's the calibre of the, the team of people that we, uh, we work with, that they can work in this variety of styles and, they, they, you know, hopefully they always come up with the goods. Absolutely. You are producing your own shows at the moment. I was up there a few weeks ago, a few months ago rather, to see uh, Toby's Travelling Circus. And you're doing everything, the, the animation, the puppet making. It really is a great to see this sort of continued success, you know, follow through to, to production. Do you see yourselves branching out further with this? We'd, we'd love to branch out more into to doing uh, production work, yeah. And it's something that we, you know, we're continually striving to do. We're working on a project at the moment which we're trying to get finance for, which is a children's TV series. But we're also developing projects which we hope can be taken into feature films. That's an expensive exercise and, and you know, one of the problems we've got is, is actually raising the funds in order to do that work. And, you know, Leica spent literally hundreds of thousands of pounds, if not millions of pounds, developing story ideas for feature films, you know, but they do it obviously very, very, very well indeed. You know, we're trying to develop film ideas on a, on a micro budget, but, you know, we will keep chipping away and, and um, there'll be times when we never thought we'd get a, a TV series off the ground, let alone a feature film. But, um, you know, we, we've got a TV, a couple of TV shows made now and the third one looks like it's going to be made uh, next year. So um, it's not stopped us um, dreaming the, the, the fact that it's such an uphill struggle. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to continue to do it, we're going to continue trying to find sources of development money and, uh, you know, hopefully one, one of these days we'll be talking about a new up and coming feature film. <laughs> well, that'll be, that'll be great. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it will, I don't know. Excellent. Speaking about the future, um, are you currently working on Pinocchio, Guillermo? Del Toro, is that a sort of thing you can talk about? I, I think it's, it's in the press and therefore it's in the public domain that, that we've been talking to uh, the Jim Henson Company and uh, Guillermo Del Toro about Pinocchio and he himself went over to, to, uh, for a visit to talk about this uh, earlier this year. The film still hasn't been greenlit as far as we're aware and uh, you know, we we were talking to the Hensons about Pinocchio about three years ago. So, you know, it could happen tomorrow, but it could happen in another three years' time. We really don't know. We, we met uh, Guillermo uh, in August, and he's a great character. He's somebody I think would be really fun to, to, to work with. Uh, again, very much like Tim, in, in that, you know, he's passionate about the films that he makes and he's passionate about stop motion and uh, you know it's always you know it's always a great pleasure to, to work with people who are passionate about the type of work that, that we're involved with you know the medium that we're involved with so you know we've got our fingers crossed uh, that, that that will happen but as to whether it ever will I don't know I mean Hollywood is 
is a, is a wash with films that might happen, which you never do. So uh, you know, we just got to hope that that um, it will all come good, and that, that uh, if it does, that you know, we'll be lucky enough to be involved with it. Brilliant. And you, you say it earlier on that you. Uh, still involved in the sort of mechanics of model making yourselves and Ian still very hands-on still very Ian and myself never set out to um, you know have our own company it was only because the through reasons beyond Cosgrove Hall's control we didn't want to go back to the real world we didn't want to get real jobs so um, you, you, we thought you know let's try and set up a company doing what we we know best which is making puppets and so Ian and myself, um, you know, first and foremost, we, we like to be in the workshop, getting our hands dirty, making puppets. That's what interests us and that excites us. And, uh, and you know, particularly, you know, working with the, the, the people that we're, we have here, you know, they're, they're, they're great. And, uh, you know, we've got some people who've been with us for 20 years, other people who've been with us for two years. But every project is different. Every project is, is exciting in its own way. And... Uh, you know, we want to be part of that, really. So we, we still have a workbench each uh, in the workshop. And uh, whenever possible, you know, we, we get down there and, uh, you know, we, we get involved with, with the, the projects. Sadly, as we found to our cost, uh, developing projects and raising money to, to make those projects is uh, it's a whole other kind of ball game. It's not really what we're about, but it's a necessity in order for the company to develop and in order for us to keep having work, public work coming in. So our hearts are in the, in the workshop, but from time to time, you know, demands of the business are such that we have to spend time in, in the offices and in meetings uh, trying to, to uh, you know, get ideas into production. But yeah, first and foremost, we like to be there getting our hands dirty. Excellent. Oh, Peter Saunders, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Yeah, thank you very much, and thank you for asking me. I think it was discussed by Robert Morgan a few podcasts ago. Automatically, stop motion has this kind of. Uh, uh, uncanny I think was the word he used quality of movement which I think lends itself to creepy animation very well I think it's why something like Nightmare Before Christmas did very well I think it's why um, it would work a lot better with a Tim Burton aesthetic if you know what I mean yeah, it's why Robert Morgan himself managed to capture a quality which would be very difficult to capture in 2D and sort of not entirely underused but I'm surprised that it hasn't been used to the extent that it could be you know in, in horror mm. I mean when I was a kid there was certain animation that scared the bejesus out of me go on I'm sure everyone kind of has things from their past that used to give them nightmares. I'm sorry, you know? Ben. I sounded like your uh, I sounded like your psychiatrist there. <laughs> you know, you're talking about your childhood nightmares, and I'm go on, <laughs> carry on. That's okay. Finally, someone's listening to me. Well, it is nice that we're finally listening. Uh, we also opened the question up to the Twitter audience. We asked the question earlier on: What terrified you as a child? In the world of animation. I think that people, especially young, impressionable minds, could, as well as being uh, uh, entertained by animation, probably uh, probably soiled a few mattresses. <laughs> Shall we see what some of the people from uh, from Twitter said about uh, about what scared them? Yeah, as kids? yeah, little wusses. <laughs> <laughs> 
I found it quite fascinating, you know, things that scared me when I was a kid. Cause, uh, what have we got? I look at it as an adult and I kind of wonder why, you know. It's an interesting psychological thing of, of deconstructing something. I wonder why that had a scary uh, uh, association with me as a kid. Yeah. First uh, 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 response from, I'm not going to try and pronounce his name, but at Dan underscore Hin on Twitter, the Dark Crystal... And then in parentheses, do puppets count? No, they don't. Um, and Akira, which is animation. Well, I remember the Dark Crystal. I guess for the purposes of this, we can count puppets. Yeah. I mean, I'm personally not in the school of thought that live action puppetry is animation, but some people consider them part of the same thing. It does the same um, thing, really, doesn't it? It brings something to life. I think that's the people maybe taking that literally. Yeah, it's, it's kind of not knowing what words mean. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or not appreciating that words can have, you know, two meanings, but still be derived from the same essential source. But yeah, I do like, uh, I do like the, the was it Jim Henson? I believe so, Dark yeah, Crystal? Jim Henson. Yeah. yeah, who else? I like a bit of Jim Henson. And did you see Akira? Well, actually, quite shamefully, I saw Akira for the first time when I was a student. So obviously I was old enough to appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, the, the bit where he becomes sort of this big blob monster thing, not taken directly from a script. I could have found that quite terrifying. Mm. Yeah, as a kid, yeah. This is J.K. Ricky at Animator J.K.R. My younger cousin used to cry and run and hide when the giant tiger head came up out of the sands in Aladdin. <laughs> that's a good one. That's a, that's a really good one. Yeah, because he used to eat them, didn't he? Those who, who weren't worthy just used to just write and just eat them. Um, yeah, he ate them and then they were in a pile of treasure. Yeah. wasn't the worst yeah, nowhere to spend it they meet their wacky genie mate and go on adventures <laughs> as a little side note JK Ricky adds also by the way I changed my twitter handle after your one podcast where you said my name was miserable to read <laughs> I don't remember what his old name was I don't remember what his old name was uh, probably because it was so miserable but his new twitter handle is at animator JKR. I like that we have that kind of power that we can change people's lifestyles. Yeah. I wonder what else we can get them to do. Yeah. yeah. What, what else can we get JK to do? Well, not just him, all of them. Tune in for the next podcast, JK, for your instruction. <laughs> Jenny Hall at Jenny underscore Hall. That's Jenny with one N. Pinocchio. Pinocchio? Yeah. Uh, half boy, half puppet, half donkey. <laughs> Oh, you've crossed a very creepy line there, Disney. Well, well done for the fractions there, Jen. Uh, oh, fair enough. But but I would agree with that. There's a part in Pinocchio where where the hands are transforming into hooves. <laughs> I remember I remember being quite scared with that as a kid. Just when he starts like laughing and and being a donkey, it, it was quite confusing. I think I saw online somewhere that um, if Pinocchio were released today, it wouldn't be a PG because of the amount of drinking, mm. fighting, smoking, people getting knocked out, people getting punched, you know, <laughs> terror. The sort of things that film standard agencies wouldn't let a new film get away with today. Yeah, and see, I don't even remember any of that stuff, and I saw that film a bunch of times as a kid. Yeah. And it just sort of goes to show, like, this stuff just washes over kids. It's, it's hypersensitive nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Well, apart from all these sort of uh, deeply maladjusted adults that are getting in touch with a Twitter website and explaining their <laughs> childhood well, traumas I, to I, us. Well, I think is... our maladjusted nature stems from all sorts of different things, not just one movie. It's all the Disney movies combined. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean if after, they, after he turned into a donkey, if they'd taken him to, you know, Tijuana and made him do one of those special shows, then I could see 
you know, making a case for it being <laughs> disturbing, but I, maybe that was the director's cut. I don't know. I think they played it safe. <laughs> Who else have we got then? Basil the Great Mouse Detective. See, this is all stuff I wouldn't have thought of. The sidekick character of a bat that kidnapped people gave me nightmares for months. It's from Adrian Dowling at Adrienne Dowling. Uh, uh, do you remember that? I do, yeah. I, I mean, the bat may be creepy, um, but I would have said Rattigan was was maybe the most terrifying part of that film, voiced by Vincent Price, uh, horror, great horror actor. Yes. Um, and uh, obviously known for being the original Vincent, you know. Uh, he, he, I think he had a career in other films before that. Yeah, he may well have done one <laughs> or two other things. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm really downplaying Vincent Price's brilliant career there. But um, yeah, I think it was... Was um, he in the Scissorhands he, as well? That was him, wasn't he? He was the professor. Yeah, he was the he was a professor at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, the one who was fantastic at creating like a central nervous system and and eyes and and, and other sort of <laughs> um, muscular systems. But as soon as it comes to creating hands, he just got lazy. Um, he, yeah. <laughs> what a terrible thing to make hands out of. Instead of making them out of sausages or making them out of uh, bananas or something, what's the sharpest thing you can find? <laughs> so yeah. Um, Basil the Great Mouse Detective. Not a terrifying film, no. Sorry. Sorry, uh, Adrian. Well, I haven't seen it, so I can't judge. I, I might see it, and the bat might make me brick myself, so I'll abstain from judgment for the time being. Uh, <laughs> Sampo Rask, at Sampo Rask on Twitter. Sid's Spider-Baby Mutant Toy from Toy Story 1 was horrifying. Yeah. That was the guy who, who, yeah, he had the toys and he reconfigured all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 that was a, okay. quite a quite a sort of terrifying scene, really, for such a. That yeah, I, I remember being kind of sort of surprised because I, I mean, I wasn't a kid kid when that film came out, but I was like twelve maybe, and and I wasn't expecting it. Mm. Yeah, considering the rest of the film was very sort of bright, lovely pastel colours, you know, and then all of a sudden you get the horror you know, <laughs> of like a, yeah. you know these spider baby mutant toys. Um, Although I have to say, seeing it as an adult when it came out two years ago the baby in Toy Story 3 was pretty scary oh yeah and there wasn't even a spider it was just like an old broken doll big baby but it was just sort of creepy yeah that's very creepy when it's sitting on the swing and it's looking at the moon and yeah and his head turns around yeah. <laughs> the director Lee Unkrich is a big fan of The Shining so he did creepy very well but I must say the most creepiest thing Pixar ever did was the baby in the original Tin Toy in Tin Toy I saw that like a month ago yeah. For the first time, kill that thing with fire. <laughs> Jesus, what? It's like the thing from the ring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I swear to God, I booked my vasectomy the next day. <laughs> I, I'm surprised I hadn't seen it. I must have been aware of it, yeah. but hadn't seen the whole thing the whole way through. And yeah, it's like this baby that I guess because of the whatever system they had in place the polygon distribution or whatever wasn't quite uh, ready yet for for realistic human animation this baby looks like its face is melting yeah. and it's got this scary kind of insane manic movement to it you know it's um oh. it's going to be the last baby that you'll see before you die <laughs> no wonder the little toy is so terrified and hides under the sofa <laughs> But yeah, yeah, such a terrible. I mean, like, at the time, would it have been considered like cute? Look at the cute cartoon baby. I think at the time it must have been considered. Wow, they've managed to make a baby on a computer yeah. and and sort of disregarded its mangled face. But um, <laughs> yeah, 
it's I think worse for me it was like the arm movement the kind of like shaken yeah it was like yeah it was like it was having a seizure <laughs> yeah. Oi. thankfully yeah. Pixar moved on well fair play to Pixar I mean that scared me as an adult so you know <laughs> The most popular uh, film that's gotten a bunch of mentions from from different people is uh, Watership Down. Mm. It didn't occur to me, but I could see what a lot of people are talking about. Yeah. Yeah, at least five or six people have, have, have commented on that one. I mean, did you find that one scary? I think I was probably at the wrong age when I saw it. I think um, I saw it a, a little bit of it when I was a kid. Because it's so dramatic, I don't think I was mature enough for it, and I think I was a little bit bored. And so I just sort of we went downstairs and played with my Lego or something. But seeing it as an adult, you know, it's very sort of dark, dramatic. Considering these are rabbits, I mean, every other rabbit that's been portrayed in mm. in animation or, or kids' films, at least, is a cute and fluffy mm. friend or a wise cracking Bugs Bunny character. You know, but to see this drama unfold, I can see why people are so terrified by it. Uh, quirky Joe at Quirky Joe underscore. Uh, I remember seeing Paul Berry's Sandman on TV and being a bit shocked by the amount of eye theft. <laughs> sort of giving away the ending there, but if you haven't seen... Um, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think most people have probably seen that one, though. That, that one did the rounds. If, if you haven't seen uh, The Sandman, then I would very much um, recommend going to see it. Just find it. It's sure it's on, on the internet somewhere. It is a sort of... It was a game changer, really, wasn't it? You know, mm. I think they used an awful lot of German expressionism to uh, to create a, a haunting look, which uh, many people say Tim Burton borrowed from. And obviously, the fantastic Paul Berry, uh, sadly no longer with us, has left a quite a legacy. It didn't kind of shy away from a uh, all-out ending. You know, you don't want to cross a certain line. But I always have had respect for films that did. Well, I like remembering sort of how things kind of stuck with me mm. and kind of bothered me and lingered with me for a while afterwards. It may not have been so much fun at the time, but it's 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 a testament to what you can do with, you know, storytelling and, and uh, effective filmmaking again. And there isn't that much that I could think of that genuinely kind of disturbed me. I, again, I probably didn't see that one until I was too old to, to have had that effect but there were definitely films that did certainly in terms of conceptual storytelling and whatnot yeah and some others that i'm not familiar with like a uh, secret of nim yeah that was an that was a, a popular one um around the time of when everyone started leaving disney uh-huh. uh, i believe that was a don blue film i think that was his first major success when he when he left disney oh really interesting that was uh, from at anger and pierce james rusty hayner at imnas a-e-m-n-a-s Scary for animators, Black Cauldron. Ooh, meow. Zing. <laughs> I've actually, well, I've avoided that because of the, the, the reputation it has. I've seen it. Was it uh, as dismal as people make it out to be? It, it's, I, I wouldn't say it was a high point in Disney's filmmaking, but... Um, it was before that sort of proper resurgence though, wasn't it? Yeah, people left and people joined and, and they really tried to... Um, to start again, really, it took them a long time to build their reputation back up. Uh, it's not too bad. The you know the animation's okay, but uh, very misguided. Right. Hmm. Was there anything like from from your childhood that that you know freaked you out in particular that hasn't been brought up so far? Films that gave me nightmares when I was a child. Um, I remember going to see Edward Scissorhands at the cinemas when I was a kid, and when I left, I was so horrified by the blood that I had to be calmed down and told that it was tomato sauce. <laughs> um, 
I was also scared of the um, sugar puffs monster as a kid. <laughs> um, whenever I can't remember what you used to say, but he'd just sort of like rip out of his clothes like the Incredible Hulk and then raid the cupboard uh-huh. just to get to get these uh, sugar puffs rather than honey puffs. I don't know what honey puffs are, but yeah, that's that was my my main terrors when I was a child. Any animation? I don't know if I've if I've sort of blanked it from my mind. But I can't actually remember being scared of any animation. Uh, and it's not that I didn't watch it. I did watch an awful lot of animation. I think I was just trusting of the world of animation as opposed to sort of <laughs> fully engrossed and terrified of it. I think uh, I think a real world scared me. <laughs> you know, it still does. Uh, another one from the Twitterverse. Uh, Paul Hill, at P-A-L-H-I-L, who we interviewed last podcast. I've never plucked up the courage to watch The Plague Dogs the film they made after Watership Down, and uh, yeah, that came up again. Um, Dean Bycroft at Beyond Craft, the Plague Dogs, the Drowning Dog at the beginning, horrific, but awesome film. I found the scene here, so I'm going to watch it and see what how bad it is. Okay, we're punching this up. All right, Plague Dogs animated scene, shocking. Oh, the animation's good. Oh, the really nice uh, painted background that, uh, you know, it's, That's looks it. quite charming, to be perfectly honest with you. Dogs in the woods being called by yes, his master. Yeah. Who did that to you? He's just coming to Come his master. Then. I predict there's no way this won't end well. Come on, boy. Come on. That's it, old fella. Come on, up Oh, sh. Wow. Huh. I don't think that was the scene uh, uh, he was talking about because nothing drowned, but uh, I didn't see that coming. (laughs) Man's best friend, my c. Wow, what a lesson in uh, sort of (laughs) firearm safety that is. (laughs) That dog stinks. (laughs) I do like how, like, the guy's had his face shot off, but can still put his hands up to his face. Okay, I want to watch the rest of this film now. That wasn't the scene the guy was talking about, but it looks looks like an enjoyable romp. (laughs) Yeah, it really does make for quite a bizarre emotional viewing for just just the music and and their tone, and then the action. I wonder who that was made... I need to look into this film more. I wonder who that was made for. That was interesting. Yeah. If we're talking about killing dogs, um, Susie Templeton's uh, film, Dog. Now, there's a film that will give you nightmares. Oh, yeah, that was a romp. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really effective use of um, realistic eye acting, and just by moistening the eyeballs... Mm, you know? And a blink. You know, you have that sort of doll's eye quality to all stop motion. But yeah, just actually kind of giving it that sort of liquid layer um, just gave the characters a lot more life and, and made you all the more depressed. Yeah, well done. <laughs> but uh, brilliantly, uh, brilliantly done stuff. Yeah, kill a dog and you're pretty much guaranteed to, to upset people. <laughs> I mean, what freaked me out, and I'm not sure if it was the animation so much. You remember Roger Rabbit? You're going to talk about uh, Judge Doom at the end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to go back and say, yeah, that did terrify me a little bit as a kid. 
But I think maybe because it was a mix with live action as well. Do you when he's getting run over by the steamroller? Yeah, yeah, and he's freaking out, and then he comes back to life. Yeah. And it was the... I think it was the actually coming back to life, and he's all flat. Yeah. And he's kind of like, uh, he's trying to find purchase, and he keeps like sort of nearly falling over. <laughs> and it has this really kind of Harryhausen-style, creepy, stop-motion-y look to it. Yeah. Yeah, and then he takes out his eyes, and he's got the cartoon eyes underneath. Yeah, that film took a turn. It's, yeah, <laughs> when he blows himself up with helium, and you see his gloves inflating. It was all fun and games until that point. The first part of that film that scared me, and what sort of led to the exciting climax, was when the shoe gets put in dip. And when his gloves are all sort of crispy oh, yeah. off of dip. What a great thing to do to the kiddies in the audience. It's, it's sad because oh, the adorable shoe, he'll probably escape. Oh no, he's doomed. <laughs> <laughs> and not only is he doomed, he dies in this really protracted being burned alive by acid way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I guess what, what was the ingredients of dip? Was it what they would clean like acetate cells with? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was about to say. Yeah, that, it was actually the chemical formula is a chemical formula for cell wash. So <laughs> so that was what would kill a cartoon character. It's actually what happens to all cartoons, kids. What a great way to establish a cartoon villain, to have him kill a really cute cartoon. Yeah, uh, and Chris Lloyd, Jesus, he's just... He's, he was that, that sort of good 10-year run of just being the best character in all those films. What an actor. What an actor, obviously. Uh, Doc Brown, Back to the Future. Actually, no, I met Chris Wood about a year ago at a, a convention. It wasn't one of the ones I was promoting at. I was just going there to geek out and meet some, you know, quasi-famous people. And uh, he was, of course, uh, swamped with attention, and, and there was no way I'd actually get any sort of FaceTime with him, but I did get a picture with him, which was nice. It was basically like, you know, you go in, you have your picture taken, and then you get, like, dragged out of there. But I remember when I walked up to him, and he looked at me, and he goes, Hi, Ben, which was weird that he would know my... Now, other people in the vicinity might have heard him say, Hi, there. Yeah. But I prefer the, <laughs> the inexplicable version where he knows my name and we're mates. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Obviously, he knows you. It was a nice five-second uh, uh, bonding experience we had. Intense. Yeah. There was some Ren and Stimpy that freaked me out, but that wasn't really, like, kiddie. That was, again, more sort of, like, concepts kind of scared me. Because hmm. they would sort of deal with the ideas of going insane. The space madness. Yeah, yeah, like the, the psychosis and the hallucination and stuff that could conceivably happen. It was one of the post-John K ones. And it had a very odd uh, design style at the time. The director was a guy called Chris Riccardi, who, when you look at his art uh, now, he was involved in Powerpuff Girls and I think Dexter as well. And I think um, was the same kind of school of, of designers like Jendi Tartakovsky. And he brought that to Ren and Stimpy, which helped as far as, I think, time and budget and stuff. But I think that was the first episode that kind of used that design style, which at the time was quite jarring because there was no Powerpuff Girls or Dexter at that point. And it looks quite contemporary now. But anyway, the premise of the episode, Ren gets sick of Stimpy and he goes to live in a cave. That's pretty much the whole story. But the longer he stays in the cave and the more alone he is, the more he starts to become a nut job. And he starts to, like, you know, see really kind of vicious hallucinations of, you know, his skin dripping off his bones and corpses start talking to him. Yeah, I think that would give you some nightmares, all a uh, nine, ten year old me. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. You don't get that in Yogi Bear. No, no, you should have. I would have liked it more. <laughs> Yogi Bear. I mean, the, the, the Yogi Bear episodes that John Kay directed, they had some nightmarish stuff going on in them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Not the originals. Did you ever see uh, these Australian films, the Dot films? Yes. Yes, I did. Which ones did you see? 
uh, Dot and Santa Claus, and we had two of them on video. I hadn't thought of them since 1987, Ben, until you just <laughs> brought them up now. Um, the ones I remember, I think they made like 10 of them. I remember Dot and Santa Claus, and Dot and the Bunny, and Dot and the Kangaroo. Maybe and, Dot and uh, the Kangaroo. I think Dot and the Kangaroo was like the famous one. And there was a yeah, there was a bit in that that creeped me out. There was a sort of Aboriginal legend that was told through uh, animation and song and like animated cave paintings about the bunyip. Uh, it was this very kind of creepy, haunting song, and I think it was the animated cave paintings kind of freaked me out mm. as a kid. Little worse than I was. I think I'm going to have to YouTube some Dot and see if it triggers any childhood uh, trauma. I remember Dot and Santa Claus. That one freaked me out because it was just I couldn't work out why and I rewatched that one recently and that was a film that was such a weird bad patchwork of a film that it 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 seemed like it didn't really have a beginning or an ending and if you actually watch it as an adult it's it's baffling mm. and this I don't know if anyone will know what we're talking about but if you can find it on YouTube or wherever um it's it's worth a watch for the fascination of like how when a film either f- they run out of time or budget and they just kind of cobble together what they got which I think is what happened it was there were all these jarring inconsistencies with it and that freaked me out as a kid the fact that <laughs> Why is this girl yeah. flying through the air with Santa Claus? Like the way they explain that in the film, in the context of the film, it starts off as live action. This strange kind of Steve Irwin type traveling man <laughs> just like comes onto her farm and takes her and some two of her kangaroos away on a sled that he builds in the, in the garden. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't Santa Claus, was it? No, he be, he just becomes Santa Claus, and then they all become cartoons. Yeah, and then from that point, it's. It's so weird. <laughs> and from that point, it's it's like then the film starts. There probably should have been this whole first act that wasn't the first act, like the first five minutes that they just kind of rushed through to get to that point. And the ending is exactly the same. Like it gets to something that is nearly approaching what would be the denouement of a film, but then it's just the end. And as the credits are rolling, then it just like really hurriedly explains the loose ends in this really unsatisfying way. And, uh, yeah, not really traumatic, but uh, it, that was another film that I couldn't work out why it was in my head. Like, there was something about it that bothered me, and then you watch it as an adult, and okay, yeah, it was just kind of not all there. Mm. Jarring, indeed. Indeed. I'll see if there's any more uh, 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 Twitter trauma uh, out there, because I've talked a lot about me. <laughs> no, you've got a lot to get off your chest, Ben. It's fine. <laughs> You're amongst friends. At DJ Animations, Spider in the Bath was brilliant. Freaky as hell, but brilliant. Um, I think the character was was pretty uh, pretty fun for a spider, um, but I don't know. Maybe maybe if I was a lot younger, maybe it would have scared me simply because it's a spider. But uh, yeah, I think the idea of that was to make a fun spider, and I think you did a good job. Mm. Still hate them, still jump on them if I ever see them. Paul Thompson at Libra underscore Media, Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings about nineteen seventy eight. I think super, but scary for an eight year old. Uh, hmm, that's interesting. I remember that one. Uh, I think a terrifying part of that for completists is the fact that it wasn't finished. Yeah, it's just frustrating. If you're OCD and you need closure. (laughs) (laughs) At Ink and Light Film, plus one on Watership Down, and Snow White. What was scary about Snow White? I suppose the part where she's sort of tumbling through the forest um, and all the trees turn to monsters and, and, uh, you know, she sees everything as as horrendous. There's some real... 
some real horror in that film. Like Pinocchio, Disney, they didn't really put brakes on when it came to thinking about what kids would be scared of. Mm. Also part in the end with the witch that wants to be beautiful, so she turns herself into a hag. That's that's kind of counterproductive yeah, never mind. Uh, logic there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when she's trying to kill the dwarves and there's all thunder and lightning going off and things, I suppose that could be quite scary. Whilst cute... This used to freak me out thinking crisps used to be cute singing headless things. Uh, that's at Melmation, uh, and he's put a YouTube link to what appears to be a, a potato chip advert. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch this. These potatoes are for the crisp makers. Look, it's a guy who's pulling potatoes out of the ground. We're too good to be any old crisp. I remember these. Smith's crisps. crisps. We're not what? We're not It sounds like they're saying, oh, everyone in the comment section is pointing this out too. It sounds like they're saying, uh, what the hell are they saying? This, hang on. We're not budging. We're not budging. Okay, we don't have they to. They say, we're not budging. They definitely say budging. <laughs> <laughs> eh, I think it's that uh, um, you speed up the, the words and it kind of compresses the just sound and makes it sound like something else. Yeah, if you thought that, you know, the crisp that you were eating, yeah, you were eating adorable little singing things with googly eyes and cute little voices, you might uh, be a little bit freaked out. But at the same time, it might do you some favours to not have such a high salt intake. Perhaps. <laughs> oh, one thing that sort of scared me. And I was three years old at the time, so you're going to have to bear with me. Were Stop It and Tidy Up. Okay. That was a, what was that, like a PSA or a... You don't remember Stop It and Tidy Up? No. Stop It and Tidy Up. Now, was was this some kind of thing for kids to, to learn? Yeah, basically. I hated it when they tried to teach you through cartoons. Yeah. It was like a betrayal. <laughs> I think some of the monsters involved scary bumblebees or something. I just remember mm. being terrified as a kid. Yeah. It's funny how it's these that scared me as a child and nothing else. <laughs> From Rhiannon Evans at re underscore anon, the last unicorn, California raisins, and depending on your definition of animation, terror hawks all creep me out. I vaguely remember the last unicorn. If you had a certain aversion to fruit, I could see why California raisins would be scary um <laughs> i don't know what was creepy about the california raisins I, I, I don't know they was okay was that vinton it was vinton yeah will yeah. vinton there was a quality to all that and this brings me to one of mine actually but there was a quality to a lot of his like claymation stuff that just had a slightly creepy undercurrent to it yeah i remember the the raisins just being kind of goofy one of, of mine from when i was a kid was an old film of his that i don't know if it ever really made any kind of splash here. Not many people seem to know about it. And in England, it was called Comic Quest, which uh, made it impossible to find mm -hmm. when I was sort of trying to track it down, you know, uh, uh, years and years ago. The actual name of the film is The Adventures of Mark Twain. Yeah. And it's this lovely, really nicely put together sort of anthology of claymation Mark Twain short stories. And they're all sort of tied together with this. Um, it's kind of meta. It's about Mark Twain on like a, a journey with his characters, the iconic characters like Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer and Becky Thatcher. And so, you know, it's for the most part, this quite lighthearted fun, silly camp in places. I mean, very dated, very of its time, character design, but but the, the detail is amazing. 
Oh yeah, yeah especially the, for the claymation. Certain, certain uh, I've got the film on on Blu-ray. There's some beautiful scenes where where the film cuts from one scene to another. It sort of blends. So so Mark Twain's study transforms into uh, the deep south, like an old an old rusting paddle steamer. Yeah, um, it's it's and yeah, the water flows film. in, and I think I know the bit you mean. And it was one of those films that I had like very vague memories of and and some sort of stood out and then when i finally tracked it down and as soon as the music and the opening credits came up i instantly remembered everything yeah weird way your brain can kind of withhold information from you uh (laughs) until you give it that little bit of stimulus little aside this is going to make me seem like one of the dumbest people in the world but uh i honestly thought the origin of adam and eve it was (laughs) i thought it was a mark twain short story (laughs) Yeah. Because that film was my introduction to the concept of Adam and Eve. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really... I, I must have heard about it, you know, in a, in a theological context, but always assumed teachers or whoever were referring to that short story. And it is a very funny story, The Diary of Adam and Eve. Yeah. You know, but it's 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 more a kind of social satire on relationships and tying it in with, you know, the, the Bible story. Yeah. Um, but I didn't realize it was actually like a story that there are people in the world who think it actually happened (laughs) rather than and it's one of those things that kind of defines just the aesop's fable quality of you know old bible stories if you're not aware of it until a certain age anyway that has nothing to do with anything but that was one of the lighter parts of the movie yeah it's such a good thing to see that a story such as that can be sort of translated into something that can entertain children as well yeah even though I think that probably the written story when it came out probably wasn't necessarily for kids. No, no. But, uh, and something that definitely wasn't for kids, and it's my the favorite thing of his, uh, I think he's written, and he, it's his last story that he never finished. And he, he tried to write this book three times and he would give up, but the last version of it, he wrote the last chapter before finishing the rest of the book. So you can you know read like manuscripts of of this story in various forms, and uh, it's it's a shame that we'd never get to see where he was, how he was going to put it together after he died. I guess his estate or people in charge kind of cobbled together a version of it and uh, pretended that he had written it himself. And it's uh it's there's really quite terrifying condemnation of society. Like as funny as he was and as uh, witty as he was when you're a, a genuinely sharp observationalist wit and I think all of his little pithy comments and quotes and things stand up really really well he's just a smart dude yeah I yeah. think you have to sort of have an awareness of just how awful the world is and he was really <laughs> attuned to that yeah. and this the story the last story the mysterious stranger is is very chilling and I'm not entirely sure what version they used as the source for the, the claymation sequence. They, they took one scene and then the final chapter and they kind of made, did their own thing with it. And it's a lovely like standalone piece of animation. There's about like 10 versions of it on YouTube. And, you know, it, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try and link to it on the podcast page of these children and their encounter with an angel called Satan, which is automatically kind of a downer. Mm. But this scene, to me, like that, this was the scene that I had, in, like, sort of circling around in my head, and that was why I was on such a hunt in the days before YouTube uh, to track down this film because of of the visuals in this scene and the angel. The character in the book is this very beautiful young man, and in the movie, it's a kind of phantom figure with no sort of form, but it kind of carries a mask in front of 
where his his head would be and the mask takes on expression and shapes and the way the sequence pans out from that point is quite faithful Mm -hmm. to a lot of the dialogue of the book which is not for kids (laughs) and it ends with this existential monologue about how everything is really nothing but vapor and all existence can be boiled down to our thoughts which don't exist anyway Show that to a five-year-old kid, his head's going to explode. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I don't know if that gave me nightmares so much. There was a bit right after uh, with uh, Injun Joe, which was a a character from a separate book. That gave me nightmares. But I remember like what lingered uh, with me and what kind of troubled me about that film. And I watched it a lot, was that sequence. And I think like, you know, and I would have been like very, very young the part of it that I engaged with the most and really was drawn to the most was that dark quality to that. Mm-hmm. And one of the themes in the film, as you're aware, is I guess that dark side to Mark Twain, that flip side to his jovial, witty, enthusiastic, cultured man, yeah. was a very sort of troubled soul who hadn't necessarily had the best run of things, particularly toward the end of his life. And a film that improves watching it as an adult. I saw it again at, at Annecy two years ago and I bought it on Blu-ray just to appreciate the quality. Mm of the film. It's 25, 26 years old now, but it is well worth seeing. And just to say that such a adult character to be almost, but but not quite trivializing by creating a kid's animation. But I think in the end, you know, Will Vinton did justice and I think he did the film for a bet. So I think he, he can safe to say that he won the bet and uh, <laughs> did a, a you know damn fine job with it as well. What was the bet? Like, how did that... That he could make a full feature-length film using his claymation process. Oh, it was about the process rather than the subject. Yeah. Oh, okay. Rather than, I bet you can't fit as many things as possible to give Ben Mitchell nightmares. So was that the first claymation film? Um, I don't think it was the first claymation film, feature film, at least. I think, like, people who are stop-motion or claymation enthusiasts, if they haven't seen it, would be surprised because it's it's... So much of what determines the aesthetics of claymation, as we sort of see, you know, locally with the character design of, you know, Morph and Gumby and Wallace and Gromit, etc., is, mm-hmm. you know, finding something that is appealing but doesn't take too much. Uh, well, it takes effort, but it's it's not intricately detailed. It's it's a lot of rounded shapes, a lot of uh, easy to animate shapes. Uh, shapes that will accommodate uh, manipulation. So if you an- if you move an arm or, or a mouth, then it's not going to snap off or crumble, you know. And and you watch just how elaborate, just the faces of the characters in in, in these films. It's like how the hell did they get that to move? Yeah, yeah. Like I would if I tried to move that like a millimeter, it would just come apart, you know. It just the lip sync on on Matt Twain, who's got this massive mustache but they don't use the moustache and just swap the moustache around. Mm. It's carved into his face. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is the one that gave you nightmares then? Yeah, certainly the... Uh, if it didn't give me nightmares, it certainly stayed with me. It certainly um, uh, creeped me out. So speaking of Will Vinton and his style and things, sort of ties on neatly to our next interview. We went to interview the creators of Paranorman. Obviously, for those who don't see the the link, Leica Studios, which produced Paranorman, sort of the successor to Wilvington Studios, uh, without going into too much politics. 
I guess it sort of morphed from one thing to the other over time hmm. and then kind of branched off. So now whatever Will Vinton's doing is its own thing and like a, they're their own company. Obviously, based on, you know, seeing Paranorman and some of their other stuff, they're, they're still big, you know, fans of stop motion. And uh, as we talked about in the last podcast, I mean, I think we both liked Paranorman. I think we both agreed that it was... I mean, I don't know if we really talked much about the film itself, just the sort of technical glitches of the uh, the particular screening we went to. But you'd, you'd seen it before, hadn't you? Or you saw it in another context? I saw a, a screener. Mm. Um, I actually went to a, a kid's screening, which was very interesting to be surrounded by like children who were sort of very young watching quite a mature film. Mm. Um, we were talking about films produced for kids that, that gave kids nightmares yeah. uh, and how we don't seem to see that anymore. But I think Paradorman sort of harks back to the idea that the responsibility f- is with the viewer, really. And, mm. you know, it's up to them to make their own judgment as to whether they become scared by something or not. I mean, did you get the, the sense that kids were freaking out a little bit or...? They loved it. All right. It's zombie madness, and the kids just lapped it up. It was uh, mm. very uh, reassuring to tell that you know kids haven't been really desensitized, uh, in spite of the efforts of um, many uh, producers. I think that's one of the good things about Leica Studios, which is what um, Sam Fell talked about in his talk at Encounters, is that they don't really do much in the way of test screenings. Uh, they're not a slave to. Uh, an agenda put forward by a you know an executive producer or a head of a company. They own the work and they know what direction they wish to take it in. And as a result, Paranorman is a, a standout film. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I certainly you know got a kick out of it, and I think that because it didn't soften the edges any more than it needed to. I mean, they it, it did in the sense of of just keeping it a watchable film and didn't sort of slather on gratuitous insane violence or or edginess or or horror to prove some kind of point it just it used it when it seemed to be uh, appropriate to do so for the furtherance of the story very funny story a story which like i said i i didn't feel the trailer sort of did justice to i'm a little kind of at odds with the production process though and i don't know if we've talked about this i like the look of the film and i thought it, it it came together very well but uh the whole like doing so much of it with computers and then printing it off frame by frame and then animating it printing it in the sense of like you know creating the 3d models with the 3d printers um just you know over and over again and then you know arranging them sequentially which i guess is the way they did it i mean i like that but i'm sort of there's something sort of strangely i can't think of the word that's that's what's strange about it like it it's not cheating and it's not enough of a technological advance to sort of justify its own practice. Do you know what I mean? I see what you mean, yeah. I think what you're concerned about is the fact that that CGI and, and uh, stop motion are, are kind of meeting in the middle a little. Perhaps that's the, the sort of where the uncomfortableness comes from. I mean, where you've got McKinnon and Saunders creating puppets for like Frankenweenie and Corpse Bride, where puppets' heads are sort of animated using like little allen keys and you know each little individual twitch of the face is determined by the animator as opposed to being determined a couple of days or a couple of weeks earlier by another animator and then put on a face yeah is that what you mean yeah i think so i think it's um it's that element of of 
Well, if you've already kind of determined it, what everything sort of does beforehand, doesn't that take the fun out of it? Because then what is the stop motion animator, and there's probably an answer to this, but what exactly is the stop motion animator then doing apart from just putting everything in the right place? Is there stuff that they then manipulate? Do they? Is there body movement that still needs to be animated, or is that all determined too? Oh no, no, the body movement's a, a puppet, isn't it? The puppet still needs to be oh, okay. choreographed. So is it just the and heads that are being... It would make the job a little trickier, knowing that you have to hit a certain pose by the time the character's face contorts to a certain level. Hmm. If, say, for example, he was sighing, and you had this well-placed replacement sequence of of size for a sigh you would actually have to animate the shoulders shrugging and things like that i suppose that would come into play i'm not a professional stop motion animator by any stretch of the imagination but seeing how they how they went around it i would imagine that's uh, that's correct if there is anyone listening who wants to correct us then obviously bother us on twitter or uh, you know, podcast at squiggly.co.uk and tell us how wrong we were we'd love to hear from you well one of us is probably right it's probably you, because I only saw like you know I only skimmed one of the making offs, so I'm basing all my conclusions on fatuous frivolous. <laughs> I just thought they printed it all all the character animation out like frame by frame, including the body animation. But I guess if it was just the heads and and it gives the actual animators some some animation to do, then that's you know it's more of a happy medium. But if in that case, then why not do it the Allen key way? If you're going to be animating the bodies, why not animate the heads as well? Isn't that a big component of performance in stop motion? Mm. Yeah, you're right. uh... I'm not a stop motion animator, so I'm talking, you know, nonsense. I'm just speculating. I might find the whole 3D print angle a a tremendous boon. I'm all I would, because I know if he gave me a puppet, you know, with a bunch of Allen keys, I wouldn't know where to begin. (laughs) (laughs) Travis Knight, the... You know, the head honcho at Leica, if he's got a load of 3D printers, he's going to have some fun with them and try and work out a different method of doing animation. And I suppose an animation can only really progress through through trial and error and through different sort of processes. So with that in mind, obviously, I went to interview the guys. And for those who, who haven't seen the interview online, um, it's on one of the old squiggly articles. You know, for the little time that we had to do the interview, um, they, were, they were entertaining throughout. Sam Fell did the Tales of Despero. He also directed Flushed Away, Ardman DreamWorks feature. Before that, he directed Pop for Ardman. Obviously worked extensively for Ardman and then obviously went over to work with uh, Chris Butler, who was a storyboard artist uh, who had had this idea for a film in his head for a good 16 years, according to him. It's a little bit about the history of the two guys, so uh, I think we'll just uh, leave it up to them. Well, we both have directed the movie Paranorman. We're, it's an American movie made in America with American characters. And two uh, Brits. And two Brits <laughs> directing it, yeah. And it sort of comes from both of our sort of love of American movies of the 80s, really, you know, like Goonies and Ghostbusters. Chris actually wrote the script and came up with the idea many, many, many years, years ago. ago. Yeah. Probably about 16 years ago now. Because uh, I work in storyboarding, or always have worked in storyboarding, so I'm always working on other people's stories. Um, and over the years, I kept working on this idea of a stop-motion zombie movie for kids. Um, and, yeah, it became this this nod to all the kind of uh, movies and TV shows that I grew up watching. And, um, yeah, John Carpenter meets John Hughes. That's, that's the central idea. And uh, we both directed it. Sam came on board. Uh, 2009. 2009. Yeah. Took a film. Once we got going, it took us about two and a half, three years to make the make this film. 
I think one of the unique selling points of this film is that it's got quite a mature um, feel to it. It, yeah. it doesn't dumb it, it doesn't dumb down to no, the kids right. or anything like that. It's, it's quite a level of um, of maturity throughout. Yeah. Did yeah. that come natural or? Yeah. For me, no, yeah. I'm very immature. <laughs> um, no, it was it was intentional because I I think it's something of a reaction to. Um, a lot of kids' movies, not all of them, but a lot of kids' movies that I do feel um, take a, a too polished look at the world. Um, for me, the stuff that I really remember and the stuff that meant a lot to me and shaped me who, into who I was and made me want to even pursue filmmaking, it was the more challenging stuff. It was the more sophisticated stuff uh, from a story point of view. It was the scariest stuff. Um, so I kind of wanted to go back to that a little um, and the 80s was a great era for family movie making there, there were some amazing movies made in that time which we both loved yeah a little bit edgier and what I, mate, what I love about this film is that it's great for teen, tweens and teens actually and they're a, re- they're a really difficult bunch you know because everyone goes oh yeah animation's for kids but uh, all of the teenagers that have seen this that we know you know have really responded mm. well to it you know so it's truly a family movie actually you know like you can you have parents there's stuff in there for parents there's funny stuff for the kids but there's also stuff for that middle range as well oh, I enjoyed it I mm. find myself in that range I would say yeah but uh, slightly too old for animation supposedly yeah but, uh, but, no, but, but really, yeah. really enjoyed never it. too old never too excellent yeah yeah um, the look of the films it's gorgeous the team at like uh, the really go uh, oh, the lead, God, the, lead yeah. the way yeah um, so something as trivial as emptying a bin early on in yeah. the film it's just yeah. It's it's the envy of like model hobbyists and yeah. I'm sure other filmmakers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know. It, so, do any scenes stick out in your mind as as difficult to achieve? Any sort of technical? Yeah, um, for different problems? reasons yeah. actually. I mean, there's there's scenes like at the start of the the movie, um, something that's actually really simple, like um, a piece of plastic bag fluttering on a chain link fence. Um, and it's the kind of thing that you don't often see in stop motion, partly because it that whole build exists for one shot, and it's not one shot that furthers the story. So ordinarily, that would be the shot to go. You'd have some producer saying that costs too much, it's too much time, and it's not important, get rid. And it was the kind of stuff that we really fought to to keep. So in a sense, that that was tricky stuff as well, you know, because we were doing something that was that was actually pretty subtle um, mm. and making we were making there were a lot of uh, locations that exist just for a fleeting mm. you know moment in yeah. the movie and they definitely push the boundaries at both ends you know like the subtle detailed end there's a scene in the, in the first act where the two boys Norman and Neil are just in the garden mm. with a with a stick and a dog and it's so difficult to make animation just feel naturalistic and kind of spontaneous right. and just make it feel like the characters are just chatting uh, so the acting in that it doesn't look spectacular but it actually is very it's, very it's, difficult precise you know performance uh, that we were asking from mm, our animators mm. and then of course you know at the climax yeah. of the movie we've got probably one of the most we don't actually want to give too much away because we want yeah. people to see it but we kind of basically blew the whole world up yeah. Um, with and we used 2D animation CG we used every trick in the book to make that a spectacular you know Climax, yeah, to the movie. big, yeah, yeah. 
could you tell us a little bit about the design and the look of the film? Obviously, you've got a few homages um, to the films that you yeah. grew up watching and enjoying, but I see a lot of horror comics and those zombie films that you were telling us about. Could you tell us a little bit how that influenced the film? Yeah, well, it's definitely, I mean, like Chris said, it's sort of come from John Carpenter, you know, John Carpenter meets John Hughes, so a lot of it is full of homage. The overall look of the film, we wanted it to have a kind of a a messed up kind of rough kind of asymmetry. look. Asymmetry was the kind of key word, yeah. And a lot of it came from the character design, the original character designs. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, yeah part, part of the appeal, I think, of stop motion is that it is handmade. It, it does have this handcrafted feel. And I think what makes that appealing in the first place is that it's imperfect and that registers with an, with an audience. Um, I think it's very easy to design things, you know, these graphic, slick, perfectly polished shapes, um, and that works for CG, but it but it, it's it removes you slightly. There's, there's nothing quite beats that hand stitched costume on on a physical object. Um, so we, I think the asymmetry kind of accentuated that. It's it's not perfect, purposefully not perfect. Yeah. Um, but then we also in the color scheme we referenced a lot of Italian horror movies of the 70s, um, you know Fulci and Barva and Argento, and that was because we wanted to do the horror thing, but we wanted to do it in a slightly different way than you've seen before. We've all seen gothic we've all seen black and white and you know the, tim burton does it incredibly well so we didn't really want to go there we wanted to do we wanted to have our own voice excellent thank cool. you very much for talking to squiggly today yeah, thank you thanks a lot thanks for having us it was chris butler and sam fell interviewed by steve on paranorman try and catch it if you can genuinely very good very funny film uh hopefully it'll get its due i like i said before wasn't expecting to like it quite as much as i did and, and uh, i liked it a lot Great performances, uh, really good actors in it. People who may have seemed like odd choices, perhaps, but really carried it off. And I think that's sort of essential when it comes to these types of films. So, yes. Good stuff. I've got something to plug for a change. Just a quick one. The Bradford Animation Festival is back on the 14th to the 17th of November. It's a real treat for animation and games fans because obviously you've got Bath Game as well. A few people are going to be there this year. We've got Leica Studios, the guys who did Paranorman. Uh, they'll be at the festival as well as Robert Morgan, who we uh, interviewed a couple of podcasts ago. Will Beecher from Ardman as well as Double Negative. There's going to be writing workshops. There's going to be character design workshops with Curtis Joblin, who... Peter Saunders talked about. Uh, there's also going to be a life drawing class hosted by Joanna Quinn. It's going to be fantastic. This year they've given me the rather daunting responsibility of writing and presenting a new animation quiz. So it's in the style of a pub quiz. I've been told it's not allowed to be super difficult, but the prizes are excellent. So there's plenty of animation books and other goodies up for grabs. So you have to come down and try and win some. Yeah, it'd be great if people could come down. That's on the 16th, Friday the 16th. Uh, it'd be great if you could come down and take part in that. I will give everyone an extra point if they write I love squiggly on top of their answer sheet, just to see who's listening. Sock when he 
in the morning after the spirit left mass in the old concert. Here's the Bapini and the Nerfs, Tom's, Norsen and the Nickums, Norsey. See you in this near hour, see the ships in that. I don't know how it's going to sell the fair, but it mustn't shame and I've always tweaked. Men the the